Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We'll never be able to afford that. Greg, give me something that'll melt my face. Congratulations. You just started listening to Bantha Banter, a Star Wars chat show. This is a show by fans, for fans, and featuring fans. You might be surprised how much we all have in common. Hello and welcome to Bantha Banter, a Star Wars chat show. I'm Jeff. And I'm John. And we're here to discuss more Star Wars goodness, minutia, max... What is the opposite of Manusha, Maxisha, Maxusha? I don't, I don't know. Maxisha sounds like something you have wrong with your scalp. Meta, meta commentary, possibly. Sure, we'll go with that. That sounds better. <laughs> John's, John's good with words. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we had a couple of things we want to discuss. We're going to have a discussion about the uh, the Jedi Order, their their dogma, and things like that, it, which is again a discussion I've heard elsewhere, but I've never heard John's opinion. He's never heard mine, and. I'm assuming the listeners have never heard either of us uh, talk about it. So it'll be a new take on it. And then we're going to discuss some of the music from the Mandalorian. Uh, I'm a fan. I think John's a fan. We'll find out. But first, let's talk about this. John, we had this discussion, just kind of a an off-the-cuff uh, comment that one of us made, I don't remember, about discussing the uh, old Jedi Order versus the new Jedi Order. So what I thought is we could uh, each give our opinion on old versus new and what that entails. And then we can discuss it. Does that sound good to you? Works for me. Okay. So I'll go first since yours is probably going to be more interesting. Uh, to me, the old Jedi order, when I think of that, I think of basically everything from, I guess the beginning of time, but I'm, what I'm really thinking about is the Jedi order that we saw, uh, that saw its downfall in the prequels. Uh, you know, we, we talked about it and we see in the prequels that there's, they're just sort of mired down in dogma in rules and, and everything, and I feel like the uh, sort of the life had been sucked out of it. 
in a way. And that's why Qui-Gon Jinn was so important. I sort of see Qui-Gon Jinn as the, uh, the father or maybe grandfather of the new Jedi order, because he's the first one we ever saw really mention being attuned to the living force. And in fact, it's Qui-Gon Jinn who is responsible for us having force ghosts now, uh, you know, with, uh, Obi-Wan Yoda, uh, and now Luke and, uh, uh who, maybe even Leia, who knows? Um, We'll see. I guess I guess it is late, yeah, because we saw it at the end of the Rise of Skywalker, uh, and I feel like that's important because I feel like what we saw in the Empire Strikes Back, uh, Yoda's talking about it, showed a marked difference in his f- opinion and his feelings on it in the prequels, and that's kind of where I see it. That's a good jumping off point for there. So, how do you does that sort of jive with what you've got, or do you have a completely different take on it? I mean, I think it's a fair statement. I don't know that I would necessarily call Qui-Gon the grandfather of the New Jedi Order. Um, I think he had a good idea. But, I mean, let's also be honest. He thrived in the old system. And so while he espoused these beliefs... um, they weren't he wasn't doing so in such a way that hmm what's the right word he didn't do so in such a way that caused his fellow jedi at the time to take pause well but obi-wan did say in uh i believe it was in the phantom menace he said you know you would be on the council if you would just dot 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 true um but, but I, get, that, I see what you mean. It didn't cause a rift. But yeah, but that also assumes that Qui-Gon had any um, care. Any aspirations for that? Right. Any 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 desire to do so. Um, and I don't know. It just, I don't think it's so black and white as as so many people like to reduce this argument to. Okay. Well, and again, I'm going coming from a, from the perspective of someone who mostly it's based on the movies and and then the TV shows and you're, you know, much more steeped in the the expanded universe with the books and everything. So, uh, that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you because I assumed you had uh a, a different opinion based on that as well. Yeah, and 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 I will fully admit I am coming from a place of I don't know if bias is the right word, but especially because they're in in the expanded universe novels, especially in what are now the old legacy novels. It there were stories that were common where Jedi. I don't know if it was necessarily secret. I don't know if it was necessarily talked about. Um, but this whole concept of there is no love, there is no passion, there is only duty, there is only the Force wasn't is necessarily as prevalent. I mean, you've got the um the character in the in the Rogue Squadron novels, he eventually became um more prevalent in the later legacy novels of Corin Horn, who originally grew up his he had thought his grandfather who was a an inspector for Corsac or Corellian security was turned out actually to be a man who adopted his father after his actual grandfather who was a Jedi had been killed in the clone wars. 
Um, which then implies that his actual grandfather was married, had a child who was Corin Horn's father. Now, Corin Horn's father was never a Jedi, never used his powers because beginning, you know, end of the Clone Wars, beginning of the Empire, he hid himself. His adopted father or Corin's grandfather hid, basically hid him and his mother. Um, so that the Empire wouldn't find them. But right here, we have, for what is probably a major character in the late legacy novels, this idea that there was a Jedi who was married and had a kid and had a happy life and didn't, you know, didn't fall to the dark side, didn't wasn't tempted or anything like that. And matter of fact, it allowed the continuation of the Jedi legacy kind of like roots under the ground where you couldn't where the empire couldn't necessarily see them or find them out and then they were able to sprout when it was safe to do so but there are other i mean there are other stories like this so you know this idea that that Qui-Gon was the only one with these feelings or well I don't know that that was the right word choice at the moment but <laughs> it's strangely appropriate now um was the only one with these feelings he may have had them, but he never really acted on them. No, that's fair. And again, you know, I when I when I mentioned Qui Gon uh, being the one to mention it, that's because that's the only really the, the first time we got it uh, in the films. And I'm really what I'm really keying in on with that is when when Yoda is explaining the Force to Luke. You know, he he talks about it in very uh, spiritual ways. He talks about you know being a Force that binds and protects us and surrounds us and everything. Uh, you know, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. And you just didn't hear a lot of that, at least not in the prequels. And again, maybe that's just a, that's just a difference in the writing and the, and the, the focus of, of the prequels. But again, that's all I have to go on. And at that point, by the time we got to the end of the prequels, you know, they had, they really had, they had, had sort of, you know, he mentioned that they had lost their ability to really see clearly through the force and things like that. We don't know how much of that was being clouded by Palpatine and how much of it was just the fact that they had sort of lost touch with, I was assumed that it was sort of that they had lost touch with the living force because they were so focused on everything else and making sure everyone was, you know, living into these, this, this dogma and these sets of rules that they had made up. Um, so th that's kind of where I'm going. And then, you know, when we get to the sequel trilogy, we don't really know a lot about the way Luke taught, but it sort of seems like, He's taking bits and pieces from both, but mostly from uh, from, you know, Yoda's teachings to him, you know, about reaching out and, and feeling in the force. And even in um, in the, the Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, we learned that he had cut himself off from the force, uh, made a conscious effort to do that. And uh, it I, I'm sort of wondering if that's not something that the Jedi Order or at least a great number of the Jedi Order had inadvertently done by the end of. By, by Order 66. Um, I think that my personal belief is that they're two separate things. Um, I think what Luke did in the sequel trilogy and what you see again, you know, not to, to hound it too much, but in, in the Found legend, the way, that's what this was for. <laughs> in the legends <laughs> novels, it's, it's established that Jedi can with, with practice, with training, with kind of withdraw themselves from the force 
mm-hmm. so that they're just simply not visible. You see it a lot in the novels. You see it, especially during the whole um, New Jedi Order series with um, the Yuzen Vong and this concept of withdrawing into yourself so that you cannot be sensed through the Force and, and all of that. So I don't know that that's necessarily new for for deep divers. Um, for for those who primarily ex- are exposed to Star Wars through the, the movie, the TV shows, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I would agree that at, by the time of Revenge of the Sith, that the Jedi Order is, their fatal flaw is that they are not necessarily as a collective attuned to the living force, as you said. I think some of it is to do with Palpatine. Um, you know, it's it's the whole concept of when you have matter and antimatter next to each other for, for those Star Trek brethren among us as well, um, they tend to explode. Um, they can't they can't exist together. And so when you have such a, a huge dark force or you know antimatter in Palpatine so close to a light force nexus in you know Yoda and the council that there's going to be some interference that eventually lead to explosion. Um, I think a lot of it just has to do with, and and this is going to possibly be a leap, but fear on the part of the Jedi. Um, when you look at you know going full nerd here, when you look at the 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 established Jedi code, there is no emotion, there is peace, there is no ignorance, there is knowledge, there is no passion, there is serenity, there is no chaos, there is harmony, there is no death, there is the fourth. You forgot Based, there is no Dana, only Zul. There is no Dana, only Zool. that was a very obscure Upper East Side sect of the Jedi code. <laughs> um, very pet centric. We don't really talk about it too much. Right. Um, they're the weird cousins at the, the the family reunion we don't like talking about. But just looking at the Jedi Code, I mean, it reinforces, it pounds you. The very first line, there's no emotion, there is peace. Well, what is so bad about emotion? Ultimately, right. exactly. what the Jedi Code is saying is cut yourself off from your emotions because with your emotions, it's easier to be tempted. You know, it's it's... This concept of they were so scared of the dark side of the force that they refused to use their innate talents of emotion, of passion, of empathy, though you know, empathy is a little bit more of a gray area, because not because they were bad, but because it put them in a position where if they had an innate weakness it would be easier to tempt them to the dark side. Right. It would amplify that. And that's that, you know, one of the reason that reasons that the Sith seem to be so powerful to me is because they're tapping into the dark side of the force, which is all about that, those negative emotions. It's all emotion. There's no, there's no restraint, but I think, and and that's, I think that's why Anakin was drawn to it because, you know, he's an emo teen uh, and grew up into an emo young man. And then I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, going too far one way or the other was the problem. And that's what happened. Well, and I think you're, you're partially right. I think you're absolutely right that with the dark side, they fed off the negative emotion. They fed off the pun, pardon the pun, the dark emotions, but that that's why the Sith are as flawed as the Jedi. Right. Because 
this concept no of emotion does emotion is a, is a tool. Emotion is not light. Emotion is not dark. The feelings you derive, the the way you use that emotion is what causes you to go light or dark. And so the Sith are flawed in the sense that, yes, they believe in using their emotions, but they only, you know, it let the hate flow through you, you know, because it makes you stronger. Well, it does in the moment because it, it has a physical connection. It has an emotional connection, but it's not sustaining. Um... The, you know, and it's why, and I'll fully admit, it's something that growing up I didn't consider too much because Jedi good, Sith bad, and right. I mean, the legacy novels, that's how it is. Jedi good, Sith bad. But as I grow more into adulthood and it becomes, I don't know if pre- prevalent is the right term because it's still more of a fan thing and is not seen as a huge or even a minor focus in the Star Wars universe, but this concept of gray Jedi. Um, right. Yeah. You know that, and in 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 a in a perfect world, the gray Jedi is kind of you know we don't yeah, need this hoity-toity holier than now Jedi. We don't need this. I'm going to wreck the room and kill everyone in it. Idea of the Sith, but this idea that there's a of of a gray Jedi that acknowledges that emotions are there that uses them to do what they think is right, what they think is fair. Um, in a way it's more admirable to me than being a light side set Jedi or even a, a dark side Sith. It's, it's acknowledging all the tools that are in the toolbox, but still allowing themselves to be called to do what's right. Um, right. Yeah. It's, with, it, with, I, it's it's like driving. It's like having a sports car. I can go zero to sixty in one point five seconds and get this up to three hundred miles an hour, but I never do it because I don't have a reason to. Whereas in this scenario, <laughs> if if you're looking at this using the sports car scenario, the Jedi have the ability to go three hundred miles an hour. They just never do it because they don't want to overheat. And the 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 Sith are always going three hundred miles an hour, so they're always overheating. Whereas you've got the Gray Jedi who can speed up to three hundred miles per hour when need be. And then slow back down to recharge. Well, I mean, pardon this analogy. I don't know if it's necessarily the best. I, I, I may be oversimplifying it. can't be better than a, than a sports car analogy. Uh, I may be oversimplifying <laughs> it. But picture it this way. You walk into an alley and you see someone holding up another person at gunpoint. If you're a Jedi, you try to disarm the assailant because you're a Jedi. And that's what good people do. Um, if you're a Sith, you, at the very least, you do nothing because it's not your concern and it's not in your worldview. Or if you're a really dark Jedi, you pull out your gun and you stand next to the bad guy. And now the, the, excuse me, the assailant has, or the, uh, the victim has two guns pointed at them. Um, both are taking in the situation, but responding to it with their bias. Um, the gray Jedi is the one that goes in and ascertains is, is this guy holding a gun on the other person, a good guy or a bad guy? You know, it, it, it's the ability to adapt to different situations. It may be someone who 
is trying to protect someone else. You know, you you don't necessarily know who's good or bad in that situation. Whereas with the Jedi, the person with the gun is always the bad guy. With the the Sith, they're probably always good guy. But Grey Jedi actually take time to use the situation to ascertain what's right and to do what's right. And again, this is a horrible, horrible oversimplification because Luke Skywalker is not, you know, in so many ways, Luke Skywalker is a gray Jedi. He, he, he had is. Emotions. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. He, he let his emotions color his actions. Well, but... we saw him first tapping into that um, on, uh, on the second Death Star when he was fighting Vader. He tapped into that and he realized what was happening. He had tapped into his emotions as he, and as he was about to best Vader, he caught himself and realized what was happening and he pulled back. And I think that's, I think you're exactly right. I think to me, that's always been the moment where he sort of became a gray Jedi. If we're going to use that term, but we saw it even earlier, go back to empire strikes back. Um, right. We saw it, but the, that's a, for, to me, that's the first time he realized what he needed to do. Right. Well, yes, but I think he first saw the path in, in, in Empire when he's sitting there floating the rocks around his head and he senses that Han and Leia are in danger on Dagobah, not Dagobah, excuse me, on Bespin. Bespin. And, um, you know, he rushed off. Did he rush off because it was the right thing to do and because Jedi protect the weak and the helpless? He rushed off because they were his friends and he cared deeply about them. And he even even at that moment, you still have Yoda sitting there going, no, this is not the Jedi way. You cannot let your emotions... If they, if they die, they die. You need to keep your eyes on the prize. Well, it turns out that the prize was as much Han and Leia as it was defeating Vader. If... Han and Leia die on Bespin or are, are, or or wherever. So say worst case scenario comes true. Han dies in carbon freezing. Leia is, you know, Vader alters the deal further and ends up killing Leia. Um, does Return of the Jedi happen? You know, not necessarily because I think there is necessary for Luke's journey to ultimately defeat Vader as is Yoda's training, as is Obi-Wan's counsel. Um, and part of that is because they represent the emotional side of Luke. I think he was always a gray Jedi. And yes, he finally realizes it in Return of the Jedi. But I think we're signaling to the audience in Empire Strikes Back that maybe the Jedi aren't always right and maybe the Sith are very rarely right. Yeah. Okay. You make a valid point. I haven't convinced you though. I can tell. Well, no, I, I think, I don't think it's a matter of convincing. I think I, this is one situation where I kind of, you know, we don't have a definitive answer. So that's why I wanted to discuss it, to discuss it because I think this is one area where there are, there is room for multiple viewpoints um, and multiple theories until it's, you know, specifically stated in, in Canon somewhere. And maybe it is. And I just am not, you know, we're just not aware of it. I doubt but, it. Uh, I doubt it is, and I doubt it ever will be. Well, and I think that's good. That's a good thing. That this is one of those areas that I think uh, sparks this kind of debate. That's that's fun. It's a fun debate. It's not something that's divisive, uh, or uh, who knows, anything can be divisive these days. <laughs> but uh, so if if you don't if you don't think of Qui Gon as sort of the the grandfather of that, and you may have said this before, and I missed it. So if it, if you did, I apologize. But where do you see the seeds first being planted? 
Luke. Really? That late? Yeah. Okay. I think what we saw with the extermination of the Jedi at the end of episode three and continuing into uh, the period in between episodes three and four um, is a schism of sorts, not to give it too much of a religious quality, but I think that is the Sith finally able to push the Jedi off the cliff, so to speak. Um, And we see a shift in Luke in the original trilogy because it's 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 not an outgrowth. It's something new. It's how he's taken the the teachings of of Obi Wan, how he's taken the teachings of Yoda, and adapted it for himself. Because let's be honest, with the exception of a couple of weeks on Dagobah, um, all of Luke's teaching was passive. You know, there was no Jedi Academy, there was no Master right. Apprentice situation, um, and so you could almost claim that what Luke does in the original trilogy and beyond is redefining the Jedi, what is hopefully going to become the Jedi order as something new. Right. It's, it's his specific interpretation of all of the things that he has learned, right? Whether it be from Yoda or from the text that he's, you know, always searching for in the, in the comics and the books and everything. That's uh, that. That's interesting. I and 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 I and I. I think you're right. I think you're onto something there. I think maybe I'm. What I'm thinking of is I, I'm thinking of Qui Gon as being the one that planted the seed, so that Yoda could then pass that on to Luke. And I, I guess maybe that's where I'm coming from. Is we're using two different definitions there, because I think you're absolutely right uh, about that. That that Luke is, if you want to call him, he is the father or the the founder of the the new Jedi Order. And I guess I'm kind of thinking of Qui-Gon Jinn as sort of the Robert Johnson to go popular music. You know, a lot of people credit Robert Johnson's blues recordings as being, you know, the foundation of modern rock and roll, uh, which I don't necessarily agree that it's that, that it's that specific, but I guess maybe that's kind of what I'm thinking of when I'm, when I'm thinking of Qui-Gon being the one that planted the seed, being the grandfather or the uh, forebearer of it. So interesting. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, obviously, we're not gonna we're not gonna get an answer here. But I'd love to hear what our listeners think about it. Uh, and again, I don't think it's necessarily a situation where I'm right or John's wrong or John's right and I'm wrong. Uh, I, th- I think both of our viewpoints can exist in the same narrative. Um, so I'll be interested to hear what other people think about it when this when this goes live. So head to the Facebook page and let us know. Uh, until then, in the meantime, let's talk about some music, John. And you know, again, as I say every time, John is sort of my uh, my go-to person when I have questions or about music or when I want opinions about music, I go to him because I, I trust his his viewpoint on things. I don't know that we've ever actually discussed the music of the Mandalorian in detail and uh, the work of uh, Ludwig uh, Göransson. Did I, I think I said his name right? Yeah, Göransson. Yeah, 
Uh, I almost ordered the $200 box set from Mondo of the vinyl recordings from season one. Uh, I decided to go back and check later and it's now sold out, so it won't be mine. So I'll just be forced to stream it on Spotify or wherever. <laughs> so obviously I'm a big fan of the music and we talked about it off mic, but give us your take on the music. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And I, and I know that I, I had a uh, professor during grad school who actually banned the term interesting <laughs> in his, in his classes, because if you think about it, interesting doesn't actually mean anything. Right. It literally yeah, means not a... generating of interest. Well, good interest, bad interest. What does that mean? Anyway, so it's kind of interesting how much free reign Gurrenson has been given to create his own soundscape, really. But more than that, sound universe. Because not only is it not using the ideas that John Williams or John Powell or um, uh, uh, Michael Giacchino or any, you know, any composer has used in star Wars before. Like there's nothing, there is no concept, even, even in the easy spots when we had the, the evil moth at at the end of season one kind of show up with the stormtroopers, we've never gotten a hint of anything star Wars in it. But we're also, he is broken away from this concept of an orchestra, in, at least in the classical sense. Uh, there's a lot more rock instruments. There's, there's, there's drums and there's percussion and there's guitar and there's synthesized sounds, but not necessarily kind of the proto-synthesized sounds that we hear in a lot of John Williams's redo music for the special editions or that we heard with Kevin Kiner in... Um, uh, the Clone Wars and and so on and so forth. Um, it it fits into this idea, and I will disagree because I, I've read a lot of articles recently that like to credit the music with this concept of fostering the at least orally this idea of the old Western trope of um, gunslinger and child. Mm-hmm. Um. There's nothing necessarily about the music that lends itself to me. That, like, I, I will, I will fully admit, I grew up thanks to my grandparents, but mostly my grandfather, watching a lot of John Wayne movies, watching a lot mm-hmm. of you know those old school westerns, and this music just doesn't come off the same way to me. What it does come off as is building a world that's it's alien but the music ends up being an atmospheric part of that it's orally reinforcing what you're seeing on the screen but it's doing so in an original way it's not warm it's not comforting um but it's setting it, it it's not what we necessarily want from star wars but it's what we get from the scene it's what we should get from the scene is i guess what i'm saying better i will say that it's it, even though it's much much more subtle. Uh, Gurrenson is using the concept of leitmotif. Um, they're very subtle, but it's very much there. Um, you've got you know kind of that that opening theme, which somewhat works as a theme for the Mandalorian himself, but in reality is more like triumph. Or, or success or something like that when it's most prevalent in the actual score is not necessarily when 
you know, Mando steps into the room for a first time. It's when he kills the mud, when he finally defeats the Mudhorn, when he, you know, escapes from the New Republic ship and and isn't like, you know, dead. It's, because- it's when it's been earned. Yeah, it's when it's been earned. Yeah. Um, and without going into spoilers, because even though this episode is coming out in January, it is in fact November here. So hi from the past. Um, how you go? How's it going? Hope your Christmas was great. Um, or it will be great, or has been great. Ooh, now we're getting deep. Um, <laughs> is that keep covering all your bases there? Somebody will say, "Oh, he's psychic." <laughs> um is that we're actually starting to and it's um so like i said today is the beginning of november so we're through two episodes what i'm impressed with is not so much in the first episode but in the second episode without giving any spoilers at all for those of you who haven't seen it for some reason even though it's like two months later um yeah. is that um we're starting to get distinct themes, including a theme for Baby Yoda. And it's funny because I um I am addicted to um on a website called gizmodo.com. Um there's a writer by the name of Jermaine Lucier who does weekly recaps and he kind of goes through the episodes talking about tie-ins, Easter eggs, stuff like that. But he has assorted musings at the end, and it didn't hit me until he wrote this, but going back and listening, it's there. So we're now actually starting to get the first ideas of a theme for Baby Yoda. Sorry. Um, uh, the child. Yeah, sorry, sorry, producer of The Mandalorian. I'm going to call him Baby Yoda till you give him a name. So sorry about you. Um, because, you know, they all listen. Um, right. They all Absolutely. listen religiously. Yeah. Hi, hi, Dave. How's it going? Um, and um, in this article, he talks about this, this little blurb about how it's actually reminiscent of Jerry Goldsmith's themes for Gremlins, for um, for Gizmo, for for the Mogwai. And you know, I uh, I I I've, I have heard that as well. And I'm uh, like, I, I did notice that as well. This fits perfectly. And so I'm excited because what we're seeing, and it's it, you know, not again, not to oversimplify things, but I'm totally going to oversimplify things, um, is that we're seeing the same growth in the Mandalorian that we saw in so many other Star Wars properties. So you have Star uh, a New Hope that presents a handful of new themes, conceptually lays the groundwork for some stuff. And then in Empire Strikes Back, a lot of that kind of blossoms. A lot of the germ, the musical germs that were planted in A New Hope are becoming well-developed, familiar, important themes. We're seeing the same thing here with The Mandalorian. So we've had a couple of reoccurring themes in Season 1 that have kind of established the baseline, have established the universe, as well as little details here and there that are actually starting to pay off now in season two. And so we're getting a much more nuanced score. We're getting a much more sophisticated score. Which is what you expect from, if we're going to call season two a, a sequel, which is what I would call it, it's, or a sequel or the next chapter uh, to it, it, it would make more sense because season one is all about setting everything up and sort of uh, acclimating us to this world. 
Right. And the sound and the other music, I think is a big part of that as well. And so in season two, it's okay. Now you're acclimated. Let's go in this different direction and show you what this can be. And it just, it makes me excited for what's coming next. I've always been entranced by the music of the Mandalorian. Like I, I feel like it's, a noble entry. I feel like it's a a strong entry into the Star Wars canon, and I appreciate it for its originality. Um, but now I'm actually starting to get to get excited about it to see how much more sophisticated it can get. You know, because these are the things that music nerds like me think about. Um, right. You know, how can he tie these things together? How can he represent this? How can he do that? You know, and it's going to be exciting to see as we get more familiar faces in season two um, of which we know there are going to be some, or in the case of when this episode airs have, have been. been. <laughs> um, and so everyone's sitting at home and going, Oh, past John, if you only knew what was coming, <laughs> who knew that that job of the hut really wasn't dead. I mean, spoilers, by the way, future <laughs> spoilers. Uh, anyway. Um, but to see how, the themes and the ideas from season one that he were using for these people and these events start interacting with the new stuff and how it reinforces it and how it takes it in new directions. That's, that's what's sexy in my world. I mean, as much as the visual aspect of it, that's what helps tie it together for me. Well, and, and again, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a musical neophyte. I have, you know, I have studied music. I have some knowledge, but obviously nowhere near on the level of you. But uh, but I I feel a lot of that as well. I I I love the the uh, the score to the first season and and even each episode I felt like had sort of its own vibe and I'm feeling that again with this season. One thing I will disagree with you about. You mentioned that it didn't it it doesn't really resonate with you. The uh, the, the Western theme of it doesn't you don't really hear it. Um, and I think you're right in that it doesn't echo a lot of the the standard westerns of of the 50s and 60s, the the John Wayne westerns. What it really does is harken back to the Sergio Leone westerns with uh, with Ennio Morricone's scores. Uh, that's what I hear, and I don't know. I assume you're f- very familiar with the music, if not the films. Uh, and I absolutely hear a lot of that uh, in, in the score here and there. And I think a lot of that is uh, also because of the the uh, experiment experimentation he's doing with the, the arrangements with the instruments, because uh, Morricone did, you know, some, some weird stuff back then even uh, that is sort of standard today. So um, I, I, I do, I, I, that when I hear it, that's, that's, that's what I think of. I do think of a, of a Western, but I'm thinking of like a, a more modern take on it, I guess. Um, and I, I guess that's maybe where my hangup is. I'm not as familiar with those movies. I'll fully admit I am familiar with Morricone's scores, and will also. But I will also admit that my ear is biased in a way because, like you said, he for the time he was doing some new and innovative stuff that has su- since been integrated into at least the art music scene to where those things aren't as foreign in my ear. And I guess the harshness that would have been present when those scores were first heard is what I'm hearing in the Mandalorian now, but I'm not hearing in Morricone scores. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. So for, for me, 
I, I don't want to paint with the same brush and say that those those westerns were the same as all other westerns because they weren't because the scores were different right. the, the 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 plots were different that you know the style it was it was a they're both westerns yes but they're so completely different in style that they really can't be compared to each other um but to me I think what Gurrenson is the best at doing for this. For this score that even John Williams didn't necessarily do, John Williams is a master of highlighting and emphasizing, um, but his music isn't always atmospheric. Now, this I'm, I'm limiting that comment solely to the Star Wars universe, because I feel like it may have been a conscious choice. Again, and we've talked about in the past about how a lot of the scores of Star Wars are kind of reminiscent of the old Flash Gordon serials, but also more to the the old Errol Flynn movies with um of uh, goodness the the composers and their names are slipping my mind at the moment. But think think back to the old um the old Errol Flynn movies where it was oh, Corngold. Corngold thank you. Eric yeah. Corngold. Eric and Wolfgang Corngold. I will have to say ex- um extra hail box when I pray tonight to ask forgiveness of the musical gods for forgetting. No, it's okay. Eric you just Wolfgang because you surround yourself with people who can bail you out. No, that that's fair. Um but Star Wars as written by John Williams is very much in the vein of emphasizing and the heroic theme and the dark theme and and the danger theme and all of that but it doesn't always hit on the atmospheric what gurrenson is doing that is new and innovative which is nice for a star wars score because it's not as common is it is atmospheric you know the scenes on tatooine in the first episode have this kind of bleakness, this this echoing, this this transparency that John Williams didn't put in there. He he, you know, he he's got the quirky little theme for the Jawas with the English horn and 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 the horns for you know the moment when the the crate dragon uh, skeleton appears on the screen at the beginning of episode four. There are those moments, but they're not truly atmospheric. Gurrenson is atmospheric. He makes me feel like I'm there. And that's that's a very good point, and it's not something, again, it's not something that I consciously picked up on, but it is something that you do subconsciously on an unconscious level that you do pick up on, and you're absolutely right. And he, I feel like Gorenson, he he does write extremely hummable melodies, but it's not solely made up of these hummable melodies. It really is just, it's creating sort of an aural, A-U-R-A-L experience. Uh, for for the the viewer slash listener as well, and I'm really looking forward to listening to it separated from the episodes to see how much of that I, I sort of it sort of envelops me. You know how much of that comes back, comes flooding back. Absolutely. Did you watch the? Uh, I'm assuming you watched the the behind the scenes series they did for season one. I am still. I have still not. Oh, that's right. We talked I, about yeah, it. You. I still uh, have not. I I don't know why. It's not that I don't want to watch it. Um, I'm big on documentaries. I'm big on behind the scenes. I just have, I guess I've just been a bad person and well, I just you, haven't watched it. <laughs> start with the one about the music then. Okay. If you haven't watched any of it, start with that one because that's the one where I really got, I mean, I love the music, but I got an even bigger appreciation for him when I saw how he went about creating it. Because he, again, he's, he's bringing in instruments that we've never heard in Star Wars before. A lot of, 
world music instruments and a lot of things that, frankly, instruments I'd never even heard of, which I'm sure won't be the same for you, but stuff that I had not ever, ever seen before. I was like, that, that, he's, make, he's making that noise with that? Things, sounds that I thought were coming from one instrument were coming from something completely different. And, uh, and you're right, he's doing something that hasn't been done before. And the creative team, Favreau and, and the, the rest of the creative team, Kathleen Kennedy, they're giving him the freedom to do that. And that, that faith in him is, to my opinion, is paying off in spades because this, you know, I, I love the music for the Clone Wars. I love the music to Rebels, um, Resistance even. I, I've always loved every bit of Star Wars music, but you're right. This is just something, it's different, but it also feels like it's of a piece. It feels like it belongs in that universe. It's just another corner of this universe we haven't seen before because this is a universe separate from the Jedi lore and really, for the most part, separate from the Galactic Civil War, the Empire, the the Rebellion, the New Republic, everything. It's sort of just on the outskirts. And this is this is sort of the music that you would hear uh, when you get away from, quote unquote, the city. And I just it amazes me how composers can do that, How especially when he's he's fairly young. Uh, and everything I've ever heard by the guy is just phenomenal. And uh, it always just amazes me how somebody can do that, can create something absolutely unique, but still fits in with everything else that's come before it. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent on that. But, and, and I think, I think you're right. I think the reason that, that it, that it is different, you're absolutely right. It is different is, is like I said, because of that, because we're in a part of the, the universe that we've not seen, but the galaxy, I should say that we've not seen before. And uh, it feels, I'll use earthbound as, as, as a term, but I, I don't mean that it sounds of this earth, but it sounds very earthbound. It, it, there's, there's not a lot of, uh, of uh, really ethereal, majestic, soaring music because this is just, these are people that are just scrabbling and scraping to get by. And uh, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm a huge fan. I'm glad that you're, uh, sounds like as big a fan as I am, if not more. Oh, Absolutely. I'm 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 so excited for it. Me too. Me too. So okay. Well, great. Well, again, we'd love to hear uh, our listeners' thoughts on that as well. And uh, if any of you happen to pick up that uh, that uh, ten disc uh, Mondo score, I think it was ten discs. It may have been eight. Um, a lot Mondo of discs. score. <laughs> let me know. It was a bunch. And, and I'm I'm really I ugh, I wish I'd gotten it, but I had to think how often would I listen to these? How often would I pull this off the shelf, put the disc on, and listen? Put the platter on and listen. Uh, the answer is probably more than I would think, but we'll. We'll see what happens if they ever uh, repress it. So uh, that's going to do it for this edition of Bantam Matter. John, do you have anything to add before we uh, sign off for this episode? No, I'm I'm good to go. <laughs> okay, I am too. So again, thank you for listening, John. Thank you for joining me. And for Bantam Banter, I'm Jeff. And I'm John. And uh, we'll just say may the force be with you. Thank you for listening. To find more episodes of Bantam Banter or other Marvin Dog Media podcasts, visit MarvinDogMedia.com. To keep up with all the happenings in the Bantha Banter universe, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Marvin Dog Media, Instagram at Marvin Dog Media, and Pinterest at Marvin Dog Media. This show has been a production of Marvin Dog Media, all rights reserved. How many times can we say Marvin Dog Media? Marvin Dog Media.